Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we go to my interview with Pat Rosenthal from the National Popular Vote Compact, I wanted to mention that while Pat and I had what I think was a great conversation, we had it on a decidedly wonky internet connection. I've done my best to edit out the dropouts in the conversation as seamlessly as possible, but there are still some places where I couldn't make the cuts perfect. My apologies for that. But even with the less-than-ideal audio quality, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. My guest today is Patrick Rosenseal from National Popular Vote, an organization working to ensure that the winner of the National Popular Vote for the presidency actually becomes president, something that hasn't actually happened in two of the last five presidential elections. Mr. Rosenseal, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for reaching out. You know, most people, I think, believe that changing our electoral college system would require a constitutional amendment, something that is just about impossible to do, really. But your organization has actually found a way around this. And can you explain what that is and how it would change how presidents are elected in the United States? Yeah, sure. I'm not sure that I feel like we found a way around it. I think we found the constitutionally appropriate route to make the change uh, or to reform the current system. So, Um, You know, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution leaves it to the various state legislatures to determine how they're going to award electors. It says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. Um, States also have a power that's called the power to create interstate compacts in Article 1, Section 10, you know, which is the power for states to form agreements amongst themselves to advance their interests. So what National Popular Vote, the Interstate Compact, is, is it's a a compact that uses the power under Article 2, Section 1 and asks the various states' legislatures if they want to form together and award their electors in block to the candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. That's what the compact says. Our compact takes effect when there are 270 or more electoral votes that have our bill in place on July 20th of a presidential year, and that guarantees the presidency 270 or more electoral votes to the candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states which is the constitutionally appropriate way to make every voter in every state politically relevant in every presidential election. And that's sort of our approach, and that's what we've been working on since 2007. Okay, and and that seems pretty straightforward, I think. You know, but one, I guess, um, reaction uh, immediately that I have is, while I am politically liberal, I'm kind of, uh, I've called myself a Burkean conservative, so I, I tend to believe that things that have been in place for a while, there's generally a good reason for them being there, and, you know, because human beings aren't nearly as smart as we think we are, it's oftentimes best not to make big, drastic changes. Now, now that said, if I were a state legislator, I think I'd probably end up voting for national popular vote. But of course, as, as you know, there are plenty of people who oppose it. And I'd like to take a, a few minutes to bring up some of their more common objections and get your response, if that's okay. Yeah, that'd, be, that, that, that'd be fine. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm not for changes for changes sake. You know, the truth is, is we believe there's significant problems with the current system. We're not into big, drastic changes just to have change. 
You know, when you look at the last election and 94 percent of the campaign occurred in just 12 states and the rest of us were mere spectators. Right. That's a significant problem that's worth addressing. So any objections you might raise, I might tell you how there are bigger problems under the current system and why national popular vote can address those problems. Sure. Um, and, and I probably just want to make it clear up front, if it's OK with you, that that the current system we use is based on a series of state based winner take all laws mm-hmm. and is not the founder system. Those were adopted over time in the lead up to the Civil War, and they made great sense while the states were adopting them. They no longer make sense because battleground states have all the power and the rest of us have none. So we encourage state action to change that and reform the system to address some serious flaws and problems with the current system. So with that caveat, I'm happy to answer any of your questions. All right, great. Uh, well, you know, what I've heard oftentimes from conservatives is that this is a partisan thing that's being pushed by liberals who can't accept that Republicans have won so many presidential elections. And a lot of times these critics will point to the fact that of the, I believe there are now 11 states that have enacted the compact into law. They're some of the most liberal states in the country. So what's your response to that? First of all, I think you need to know that. I mean, I think it's fair to share with the listeners that you're talking to a rapidly partisan Republican okay. who supports the national popular vote interstate compact. And the reason I support the national popular vote interstate compact is because the battleground states have all of the political power with the president and flyover states have none. So the idea that this is a partisan issue is flat out dishonest and false. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, like in the last set of legislative sessions in 2016, we had 154 Republican sponsors of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and we had 162 Democrat sponsors of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And when you point to the states that have enacted it, you're right to say that there are 11 states with 165 electoral votes. The catalyst to elect the compact or the catalyst to enact the compact in the state of New York, which has joined, was the Republican Senate supported by the conservative party of the state of New York because they're tired of New York conservatives and Republicans not mattering and being taken for granted in presidential elections. And they're tired of the influence that the battleground states have, which lead to transactional public policy court moderate, persuadable voters in battleground states. Okay. Okay. Our most recent chambers were the Oklahoma Senate, right, and the Arizona House of Representatives, where we passed our bill by a 40 to 16 margin. And so I guess what I'd say is that anybody who tries to put their jersey on with this issue and be a Republican or a Democrat, you know, big issues like this that are the most important systemic political reforms of my lifetime, we have no room for jerseys or we welcome all jerseys. Okay. okay. So there are Republicans, Democrats, and independents, conservatives, liberals, and moderates who are tired of the battleground states having all of the political influence with American presidents. This has nothing to do with any single election. After all, we've never had a national popular vote election. Right. Okay. So the idea that one candidate cards, right, to build an argument against the national popular vote interstate compact because we've never once had an election in American history where every voter in every state is politically relevant in the presidential election. We hope 2020 that will be the case. Okay. 
You know, another thing I hear sometimes is people saying that this goes against the intent of the framers. You you uh, alluded to that a little bit uh, previously. I just wonder if you could maybe expand on that and sort of what the what the uh, uh, your response to that objection about well, you're going against the framers here. Yeah, well, I think it's bad civics first of all, and it's silly. Okay? And okay. the reason I say it's bad civics and it's silly is because there was no intent of the framers. The framers wrote the language they wrote because when they took thirty votes in twenty-two separate days to determine how they were going <laughs> to elect the president, they couldn't agree. Right. Okay. So, for example, there was a big segment of the Constitutional Convention that believed there should be a national popular vote of president, provided you were white, you were male, and owned property. And I'm pretty sure nobody listening to your podcast, right? Yeah. Thinks we should go back to that. Right. Visit. Sure. You know, that idea. But if they do, we don't really want their support, no. to be honest. But, 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 you know, at the end of the day, what you need to understand is that they took 30 votes over 22 separate days. And there's one idea that they never voted on, never thought about, never debated, never appeared in the Federalist Papers or in the minutes of the Constitutional Convention. And that's the state-based winner-take-all law that 49 states have in place today. Right. So they didn't think so much about the current system because they never thought about the current system at all. And what they did when they couldn't agree, you know, Madison and his faction thought that the people could vote for president. Hamilton kind of wanted Congress to pick the president, believing George Washington could be president for a lifetime. When they couldn't agree, they formed an electoral college. They had a series of votes trying to dictate to the states how they might award electors. And in the end, we don't have to worry about what their intent was because we can read what as a Burkean conservative and a strict constructionist. You know, I think we can agree that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors is pretty clear language. Right. And that the founders meant exactly what they wrote, that if the legislature determines electors to the winner of the national popular vote, then the state based winner take all law. The legislature has the authority and the power to do so, and they are the only body of government. There's a problem with the current system. And again, the current system is the system where 94% of the campaign happens in just 12 states. The rest of our, us are spectators. And that is the number one sort of indicator of battleground state status, right? Mm -hmm. And battleground state status is probably the number one proxy for political influence with the president of the United States. So battleground states are more likely to get exemptions from no child left behind as flyovers. And battleground states are more likely to get natural disasters declared than flyover states. And if issues are important to persuadable audiences in battleground states, they become the number one domestic policy agenda for the presidents in Congress as they try to win re-election campaigns which is why Mr. Trump was won the battleground state of Florida by saying he's going to keep his hands off Social Security and Medicare, mm -hmm. right? And then he won Pennsylvania by talking about starting trade wars with China and American trading partners. Now, reasonable people can be on all sides of those issues, but it's the current system that drives that agenda. We believe it's fundamentally flawed. We know we're not stuck with it. And we ask legislators of all stripes and act reform. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned a lot about battleground states and, and how this would sort of change campaigning. And one thing I've heard from some people is that they're concerned that under a national popular vote system, candidates would spend all their time in a few big states uh, and, and, and basically on the coast, essentially, and ignore people in the vast majority of states. It sounds like you're saying that something exactly the opposite of that would happen. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a silly point in that it ignores it. What it does is it ignores political demography. I think 
you know, Mr. Trump, in his, uh, you know, had 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 one thing right that under a national popular vote, it's quite clear over the years that he's a supporter of national popular vote, as has Hillary Clinton. So again, nonpartisan issue. But you know, Mr. Trump, in a tweet, said, you know, under a national popular vote, I currently, and then focused his attention on California, New York, and Texas. Okay. Well, if he had focused his attention on California, New York, and Texas, he would have lost the national popular vote campaign. Right. right. Because if you add up the voters and you gave him 100 percent of the vote from those three states, which would never happen because Texas is a Republican state, California is a Democratic state, and there are Republicans and Democrats that live in each of those big states, right? Mm -hmm. But even if I added them all up, it's less than a third of the population of the United States. Right. Okay? So under the current system, it is true that if you carried the 12 biggest states, which are 270 electoral votes and represent 51 percent of the country— Right. If you did that, if you carried those states by one popular vote, you would be elected president under the current system. Right. But you don't see candidates focus their attention on those states because they know for every California, there's a Texas. Right. For every Illinois, there's a Georgia. For every New York, there's a North Carolina. Right. Mm -hmm. So politically divided now under the current system. So if you came out of the big states in roughly a dead heat, just say plus or minus 2 million votes in a national popular vote election, right? The rest of the states become incredibly important right. to the outcome of a race that's predicated on who wins the most votes in all 50 states. Now, the other thing I'd say to my conservative friend is that it's the small states. It is the current system that fundamentally marginalizes small states, okay? So for the 10 smallest states in America in the last five presidential elections, they have received very close to zero dollars spent campaigning for their right mm -hmm. for their for, for their votes. And they've seen zero events in the last five presidential campaigns and that that translates into political influence with the president. So the only way to make every voter in a small state politically relevant in every presidential election is to move towards a national popular vote system. And the only appropriate way to do that, or the constitutionally appropriate way to do that, is through the national popular um, You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the lo logistical aspects of this, which is kind of another area in which I, sometimes people raise some concerns, at least. Uh, for instance, some people have said, well, uh, this could be really a logistical nightmare because if an election's even remotely close, it would make sense for the losing candidate to call for recounts in all 50 states, whereas now that would be you know, essentially pointless, except in those states where the margin is extremely uh, close. I mean, and then, so there's a concern that our already kind of overworked and underfunded state election system would basically implode under this kind of pressure. Well, what do you think about that? Okay, Michael, I don't know if uh, I got the end of your question. Oh, sorry. Uh, I can just I can start with the question again, actually. Let me just read. Let me just go through it again. Um, That's fine. You broke out in the, the middle of it. I mean, I understood the nature of the question. I should say, but yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was can our can our uh, already underfunded state election system kind of handle this potential for recounts in all in all fifty states? If you know, if it's a real close election. Well, so so here's I mean, there's a lot in that question, right? Well, first of all, I think the answer to your question is certainly the state election system can handle a national popular vote election, just like the state election system handles the current system. And national popular vote as an interstate compact continues to take keep control of elections in the state's hands, which we believe is an important principle of federal. I mean, you know, there are constitutional amendments that are, you know, floating around out there, which we don't support. You know, we're a single subject group that supports the interstate compact. 
But if you go to a constitutional amendment, obviously the federal election would start controlling election laws. Okay, mm -hmm. so I think that that's a benefit to the national popular vote interstate compact is that states preserve control of elections. Now, in the 11 states that have passed our bill, and then we've passed chambers, right, in one or the other chamber in 12 states, totaling 96 electoral votes. And our bill has been introduced and considered in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, which acts as a state in presidential elections. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not one of those bills has been attached with a fiscal note. Okay. So what that demonstrates is it doesn't cost anything other than what you're already spending to sort of um, adhere to a national popular vote system vis-a-vis -vis the current system. Right. Okay, so logistically, and then logistically, elections act exactly the same way other than one very important principle at the end, right? So under a national popular vote system, right, voters continue to vote in their precinct. Those returns get reported to the county. Counties report to the chief election official of the state, there are rapid transmission laws in place in all the states to sort of prevent any sort of fraudulent activity or slow paying of counts or any of that kind of stuff, right? But each one of those steps is a public event. All of those data points are from the, the entity of government that's responsible for reporting them up to the chief election official of the state. Then the chief election official of the state does exactly what they do under the current system, right? which is create a certificate of ascertainment, which includes a canvas of the state or the total popular vote from the state and the slate of electors that are certified under their current state statute. So all that happens and then it's sent to Congress for the count, right? Mm -hmm. The Electoral College meets sent to Congress for the count, five other copies of this thing at the National Archives and everywhere else, right? But the only difference is, is in compacting states, they certify the slate of electors that is loyal to the candidate who won the most popular votes in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. So logistically, the compact will work exactly as it's intended to work and defined in the 888 words of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact that can obviously be found at nationalpopularvote.com. You don't have to you don't have to read a lot to understand how this is going to work. It's right. going to work exactly as it's supposed to work. Now, you also asked a question about recount. I mean, the truth is, is there's not a single election in the history of the republic that would have been recounted under national popular vote. Wow. Well, I, I mean, look, what's going on in Wisconsin right now is a recount in a not particularly close election right. in the state of Wisconsin. Okay. And the change so far has been plus 114 popular votes to Donald Trump. Right. Okay? The average change of votes in a statewide recount, according to Fair Vote, and they're pretty good at this stuff, right? 294 votes change hands in the average statewide recount. Jeez. Okay. There would not be a single recount in the history of American presidential politics under a national popular vote. Okay. Now, I'll tell you that if a presidential election comes down to 20 to 25,000 votes, then all 50 states will follow their recount process. And all 50 states will have a say in sort of the outcome of that process. But the reason there are so many recounts under the current system is because we turn them into 51 separate elections, right? Mm, okay. That so we sense. didn't like count. We didn't recount. Well, Florida wasn't recounted because you can't conduct a recount prior to what's called the safe harbor date, right? Right. There have been seven litigated counts in presidential history. Not one of them was a timely recount. Hawaii conducted the only recount in the history of presidential elections under the current system, but it came in after the Electoral College already met. The reason was a winner take all along.
So right. So if you don't like recounts and you think recounts are messy, it's the current system that you should want to change. Huh. Interesting. I I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way, but that would obviously be the same for recounts or legal challenges. You're you're saying essentially that we would almost certainly get fewer of these under a national popular vote system. Huh. Well, 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 well I think I think what the likelihood of a recount is is once every fourteen hundred years with national popular <laughs> wow. vote. We've got three recounts going right now under the current system that aren't going to make a meaningful difference in any way in the presidential campaign because Jill Stein proved one thing that if you're willing to pay for a recount, right, you can get one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, another question right now, of course, the candidate has to win a majority of the electoral vote to become president. Now, is it possible under a national popular vote that a candidate could become president without, I'm sorry, without, I I, I didn't catch your response there. Sorry about that. So I guess I'm asking, is it possible under a national popular vote that a candidate could become president without a majority? Of the electoral college? No, of, of the, uh, uh, of, of the votes. I mean, could you get a plurality president in other words? Oh, sure, sure. And, and do you see that as a problem for the legitimacy of the presidency? Gosh, no. I I mean, look, we don't believe plurality presidents are a problem. We don't believe they're a problem under the system, right? I mean, right now, Donald Trump is a plurality president. Mm-hmm. We think, I think he won a decisive victory under the system as it exists. Abraham right. Lincoln was a plurality president. He won a decisive victory under the rules of the game. National popular vote guarantees the presidency to the candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states. Jordan. So they're a problem. They're a problem under both systems, right? Mm-hmm. But to us, we believe the candidate with the most popular votes in all 50 states ought to be elected president because that's the only way to make every voter. It's the only way to make a Democrat in Oklahoma feel like they're relevant in a presidential campaign. Right, right. And it's the only way to make a Republican in California feel the same way. And frankly, I think we'd lose all of these conversations about legitimacy. Now, under both systems, you know, the beginning of your question, you know, I just want to correct it a little bit. OK. Right. Because, yes, you are right that under the current system, you require a majority of the Electoral College to be elected president of the United States. Under national popular vote, you're required to have a majority of the Electoral College to be elected president of the United States. Gotcha. Sure, sure. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's really important for at least a third of our coalition to understand. Right. Right. But and maybe more, meaning, you know, people who are coming at this thing from a state powers perspective more than. They are even a one person, one vote perspective. Right. Right. I'm not I'm not offended by either of those ideas, but I come at it more from a state power standpoint, which is why is my home state of Minnesota using her 10 electoral votes to make the voters of Florida quintessentially important to the president of the United States? Right. So that when presidents have to choose between our interests and Florida interests, I know who's going to win 100 percent of the time. Right. Florida. Yeah. So at the end of the day, yes. The candidate with the most popular votes in all 50 states will win a presidential election, whether it's a plurality or majority. Right. Mm -hmm. It will be the president who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states. Every citizen in every state will believe that they participated in that process and their candidate won or lost the national popular vote. And we get rid of fake conversations about legitimacy, like, frankly, the one too many people are having right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, right. President Obama is working with Donald Trump on the peaceful transition of power because he understands that Donald Trump won legitimately under the system as it was in place. Now, we didn't even have a national popular vote election, and too many of my friends on the left are trying to figure out whether or not Donald Trump's a legitimate president. 
He's absolutely a legitimate president. That's why Ms. Clinton conceded. That's why Barack Obama, the president of the United States, is working on the peaceful transition of power. That's why every leader of every major party recognizes him. But we're having this conversation out in the streets about whether he's legitimate or illegitimate based on a national popular vote, based on an election that wasn't run under a national popular vote system. I think national popular vote overnight for Republicans, Democrats, and independents settles that problem, and I think it's one worth settling. Yeah. Now, you know, let's say that this system had been in place for the 2016 election. Uh, There are a lot of liberals who believe that it would mean that uh, President Obama would be working on the peaceful transition of power to Hillary Clinton, and she'd be president-elect. But Donald Trump has said that if there were a national popular vote, he would have campaigned differently than he did. And so I'm wondering, how do you think this system would have changed how the 2016 campaign played out exactly in terms of what the candidates did and how they did it? Look, it would have changed everything, right? I mean, I, I don't have the money from the 2016 election yet, so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have that all broken down. What I do know is that 94 percent of the campaign happened in just 12 states. Right. I, I, you know, I'm not going to make any. I don't know how it would have changed the outcome of a national popular vote election. I don't know if Miss Clinton would have won that or Donald Trump would have won that. You know, I think there's a lot of Donald Trump votes in um, Governor Johnson. And this gentleman, McMullen, who ran in Utah in an effort to prevent Donald Trump from winning under the current system. Mm -hmm. Right. Those were a lot of Republican votes. And if I combined. Right. Yeah. So I don't know how that all plays out. If everybody in every state's got to make a decision between the two leading candidates for president. You know, I could make a model, say anything I wanted to say, but I'm not in that business, nor am I interested in doing it. What I do know is that if it was a first past the post system, meaning the candidate with the most votes was elected in a single member district called the United States of America, everything those two campaigns did would have been completely different because they wouldn't have hunkered down in Florida for 71 events where 26 states were completely ignored with zero events in the last six weeks of the campaign. So what I know is every presidential election in the history of the country would have been different if it were run under a national popular vote in terms of how those campaigns were executed. Therefore, the final vote numbers in the national popular vote would be different. How they would be different, you know. Sure. I, look, I don't think Democrats, you're, you, you're progressive, right? Uh, more or less. <laughs> I guess you could say that. Fair enough. Sir, if we have a fair fight where every voter in every state matters in all 50 states in the District of Columbia, at the end of every election, we'll settle that conversation. Right. And under the current system, all we're doing is fighting over the I-4 corridor of Florida. Right. Right. Or what's performing better, Philadelphia or the Republican T in Pennsylvania. Right. Right. And that's a system that's really, really dangerous, I believe, and really, really bad to continue. Sure. Particularly when the first question amongst too many citizens is, is the president legitimately elected? This president was legitimately elected under the current system. But there's a whole lot of people who feel like he's not. Because the score that needs to be settled in a campaign isn't being settled. Right. And national popular vote will help us settle that. And I'm for, you know, I'm for lining up and beating them no matter what your political persuasion is. Right. You know what I mean? Let's fight it out. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk to the American people. Let's elect the president. Let's do it in a way that preserves the power of the state to change the system if the states believe there's a better way to do it in the future. Yeah. Makes sense for all parties. You know, uh, kind of looking 
kind of looking forward at uh, uh, how things might uh, happen, kind of move forward with this. You know, obviously, election law is about as unsexy of an issue as there is. I mean, it, it seems to become an issue every four years, of course, then it fades. And I'm looking at the control of state legislatures, and, and the vast majority of them now are controlled by Republicans. And those two things combined, I wonder, do you think it's going to be kind of rough sledding in, in the short term, at least for national popular vote? And just could kind of more generally comment on what you think the short and longer term prospects for this are. Hey, look, the, the problems that the problems that we're trying to address in a nonpartisan way continue to be the problems. And they're the problem in every presidential election. Right. Sure. So the people who come to this issue, honestly, I mean, look, I think all the attention to the issue is great because it drives awareness and education. But I think some of the reporting around this issue is absolutely and fundamentally irresponsible because it's horse race reporting. Right based on people who have never been in the trenches on this issue and have no idea what attracts people to this reform. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me just say that, you know, kind of for the good of the order, um, we had 154 Republican sponsors on this bill in 2016. I'm not aware of any fall off in support from the legislature mm -hmm. so because every one of those members was here for the right reason, which is we need a system where every voter in every state is politically relevant and we need to right size the political influence of battleground states. And they're far more interested, for example, that when the president's got to choose between Utah and Colorado on land use issues, he sides with Colorado right. every time. Sure. This isn't like a Jersey issue for most legislators in the country. Whether they're Republican or Democrat, they all come to it honestly, and they're all discerning in terms of how they get there. Believe me, nobody's ever said, hey, this sounds like a great idea on the surface. They kick our tires aggressively and then determine what is their responsibility based on the power granted to them through the Constitution and based on what's in the best interest of their states and the citizens of their states that they represent. So we've built support that's a mile wide and a mile deep. Now, having said that, I believe any reform like this is fundamentally a pressure over time conversation. And it's an education process. OK, sure. So we take our timing cues from the legislature, not the other way around. And what we do is we go into the states and we educate our customers, customers. Or when somebody asks us to do a podcast, we say, sign me up. How can I do it? Right. So if you're out there and you're a Republican or a Democrat or independent, and you're tired of the battleground state of Florida having all of the political influence, right? and you're sick of this system where you feel like a second-class citizen in presidential politics, no matter what your political stripes are, pick up the phone, call your legislator, tell them you support the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, go to our website, nationalpopularvote.com, use our right legislator tool, you know, these petitions are doing absolutely nothing other than sort of, you know, talking to Congress or the White House. And that's fine to harness energy. But if you want to get your shoulder to the wheel and do something about this, write your legislator. Our bill is pending. And it's the people, it's the citizens of the various state legislative districts that need to weigh in with their legislature. And there's a lot of political support for this amongst Republicans and Democrats. And don't make any assumptions based on the outcome of one election that wasn't even run under a national popular vote system. Put the jersey away. If you think there's a problem, call your legislature, write them through our website. We've got a great right legislator tool where you can just look them up the best on the planet. Because we're only interested in meaningful activity on the people who can reform the system 
if you believe there's a problem with the system like we do. It's pretty simple. All right. Well, that, that actually, you, you kind of uh, 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 guessed my last question. I wanted to know what, what listeners uh, could do if they want to get involved. And it sounds like the, the first step, the great uh, first, first thing they can do is just go to your website. And we're going to have the link there uh, on the show notes. And, uh, and from there, they can kind of get all the information they need to write to their state legislators and uh, try to make a difference if they'd like to see this go forward in their state. Yeah, and, and another thing they could do is, you know, at our um, at our website, I mean, we're an information portal. We believe that um, sort of the, the burden of proof is on the proponents of change, right? Sure. Going back to the original question, we believe that every objection that's ever been raised needs to be answered by us because we take our role in educating legislators very seriously. We want them to have all the information. Mm-hmm. Our website it's a great information portal. We've got, you know, we've got uh, uh, videos, you know, on the left hand side on sort of how this thing works and all of the major objections that we've heard, many of which we've talked about on this podcast. You can download our book or just peruse our book for free right there on the website. Chapter nine deals with many of the questions that get raised about our bill. If you're inclined to help, the best thing you can do is get yourself armed with a set of facts, create your own argument based on the facts, right? And then get active on the social networks and tell your family and friends, right, and followers to do the same thing you've already done, which is write your legislator and call your legislator, okay? And even if your state's already adopted the National Popular Vote Bill, sort of get engaged, because we need people reaching out who are like-minded. And I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything on this call or on this podcast. I am saying that if you believe the current system is broken because too many of American voters are left behind and they create false issues of legitimacy, right, then you think there's a problem with the current system. If you believe your state should have as much political power with the president or influence as a battleground state, you know, national popular vote, the interstate compact's a great way to do it. If you want to preserve the state power and do it in a constitutionally appropriate way, right, national popular vote's the right way to do it. And if you want to do it in a way that helps it take effect for the 2020 presidential election, certainly the national popular vote interstate compact is the only way to do it. We're within 105 electoral votes of this thing getting done. Let's get it done. Yeah, you know, and I, I got to say that I, I've been to the website myself. That's nationalpopularvote.com, and the, there are just so many resources on there. And even if, I mean, you you've more or less convinced me, I think. And I'd say for listeners, even if you're not convinced, it's absolutely worth your time to check out the website because they have a lot of resources to answer an awful lot of questions. Uh, definitely something I would highly recommend. So thank you so much, uh, Patrick Rosensteel, for taking the time to talk to me about this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm grateful you'd take the time and happy to come back any other time if you think there's anything we didn't explore. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.